This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Katia Hogendorn. Katia is an entomologist and a native bee expert based at the University of Adelaide. She joined me to talk about the dazzling metallic green carpenter bee, why it's vulnerable to extinction and how her team is trying to save this species on Kangaroo Island. I'm really excited that I have joining me now Dr. Katia Hogendorn, who is an entomologist and uh, native bee and honeybee expert based at the University of Adelaide. And she's joining me to talk about an article that they, her and her colleagues have written in the conversation called Jewel of Nature, Scientists Fight to Save a Glittering Green Bee After the Summer Fires. Katia is also a member of the Conservation Committee of the Australian Entomological Society and will be talking about the carpenter bee on Kangaroo Island, particularly the metallic green carpenter bee, and its survival post the summer bushfires, which were really quite devastating on Kangaroo Island. And I know a lot of people were shocked and scared for a range of species that were very much specific to Kangaroo Island, including the glossy black cockatoos there as well. So I welcome Katia and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's uh, really exciting to speak with you about this subject of native bees in particular. The metallic green carpenter bee seems to really capture the imagination of so many people. When we had a a live tour event with Museums Victoria, we met with Dr Ken Walker and he took us through the, uh, the collection of Museums Victoria and he was showing us some of the specimens of the metallic green carpenter bee that Victoria holds in its collection. But they're obviously from a very long time ago because the last time that Victoria had the metallic green carpenter bee was in the 1930s, which is really, you know, a shocking fact. But that said, as as we know and as I've described, the metallic green carpenter bee does exist in a couple of other parts in Australia at the moment. And you yourself and colleagues are working on and with this um, this green carpenter bee to improve its population density and preserve it and also, of course, its habitat. So I, I wanted to talk to you now about Kangaroo Island and that particular population that you're working with and the unique challenges that you're facing at the moment. So perhaps first up, I know that you studied the carpenter bee for your PhD and I wanted to ask what brought you to study that particular species of bee and why were you particularly fascinated by it? So that's a question from a long time ago. Um, uh, So the green carpenter bee is by far not the only species of carpenter bee in the world. Carpenter bees are distributed all over the world in tropical and Mediterranean areas. There are about 800 species. And I am from Holland originally, and I did my PhD on a carpenter bee species in Israel. And the reason I wanted to study carpenter bees was a bit complicated. I came to bees through an honor study in honeybees, but I started working on honeybees because I wanted to understand how you can get to a system where a mother produces daughters that are not reproducing. So so how can selection choose for that? It's really strange. 
the daughters are helpers. They don't. They help the mother reproduce. They don't reproduce themselves. And the mother reproduces workers, 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 and then a queen and, of course, a lot of drones. But to get there is, is uh, quite a strange question because you've got to reduce the fecundity of your daughters, right? Which is not something that evolution would select for at all. So... Once I was studying honeybees, I thought, well, if I have these questions, I'm better off studying some less social bees. And carpenter bees are very much less social, but they are not not social. Carpenter bees reproduce and they overlap with their offspring. And in some cases, mother and daughter have some sort of division of labor in the nest. That would be then the first steps maybe in the evolution of that mother-queen reproductive and daughter-worker system. Mm. So that's why I started to to look at carpenter bees. That makes a lot of sense. I know that, you know, when we talk about native bees – that we talk about them as solitary bees and they're not particularly social. But as you've just shown, the carpenter bee does have some level of socialisation. That is really fascinating. When I was looking at the videos of the carpenter bee, particularly the green carpenter bee, it was in its nest in a, a woods trunk and it was sitting at the hole looking out and it seemed to be potentially guarding that nest And I was interested in the types of behaviours that the carpenter bee exhibits that are unique to, I guess, carpenter bees, but even the green carpenter bee. Yeah. So carpenter bees have this overlap of generations and they have to be there because the nest is very vulnerable to intruders. The the brood, of course, is a nutritious bit of food for ants, etc. And they are only separated from the ants by some sawdust partition. So it's easily invaded. So the brood is protected throughout. And so we call this an obligate overlap of generations. The mother has to be there to protect her her daughters and sons and she even feeds them after they have come out as adults so um, that is also what makes the one of the things that makes the carpenter be vulnerable to fires because of course then if you want an adult there's got to be food year round there's got to be food all the time when it's warm enough to forage they will go and get out and 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 require some nectar and require pollen so so if there's a fire coming through there's nothing to eat for those bees if they would survive at all but the other thing is of course the the word carpenter bee already says it it digs its nest in wood it uses wood and dead wood in particular And that is, of course, completely uh, vulnerable to bushfires because that's the first thing that will burn. And so so this species is particularly vulnerable to fire. Not all bees have this overlap of generations, so you were asking about that. Most bees have a very short term outside as an adult, about a month or something like that, and then you won't see them again called developing offspring, and they come out next year. Some bees have multiple generations, and other bees have this overlap of generations. And then there are other bees, 
apart from honeybees that are social. Bumblebees, which have been introduced in Tasmania, have queens and workers. And in Australia, the sugar bag or the stingless bees have a queen and many, many workers in the nest. So, so honeybees are by far not the only species. And in terms of those overlapping generations, once they become grown um, into mature bees, how do they interact or what is the extent of their interaction? So in some cases, in some species, they can make a second generation. And in, in the stages of the second generation, you often find a female producing offspring and adults from the earlier generation uh, still emerging, and uh, so it's very, very fluid. In the case of the green carpenter bee on Kangaroo Island, they only have one generation, and so the mother produces the offspring in October, November. Then she waits for them to come out somewhere in January, and then they share a nest until the next spring, and in the next spring they mate, and they have competition for who inherits the nest, if it is still suitable. And they can fight for it. And uh, at some stage, things get settled in the population and then the nest will be solitary for a while. So that's, in a nutshell, the, uh, the, the life cycle of that green carpenter bee. What a fascinating life cycle. Um, I was really interested in how large it is as well because it is visually quite um, large compared to other native bees and you write in the article with your colleagues that it's about two centimetres long and is among the largest native bees in southern Australia. Given that it's a carpenter bee and it's burrowing holes into wood, how does it actually do that as an insect, as a bee? What kind of conditions are needed for it to be successful at burrowing and creating these holes. So that also relates to the vulnerability of this species. It relies on soft, dead wood. And on Kangaroo Island, it's basically found in two types of soft, dead wood only, in dead stalks of, um, of grass trees, which flower profusely after fire, and in old, dead banksia trunks. Now, at the moment, I've just come back from Kangaroo Islands and the grass trees are flowering everywhere. So in two years' time, when these grass trees are dead and dry, then the bees can use them and there'll be plenty of nest substrate. But then, about four years later, they'll all topple over and there will be very little because they flower profusely after fire and after that they flower only sporadically. So what you get is uh, you get no nesting substrate, then you get a lot of it and a small population. That population builds up. Then the grass trees drop and you get a reduction in the population again, right? Now, Banksia is a totally different story. Banksia doesn't survive fire. And so it needs to grow from seed. And Banksia is the mainstay substrate of the bee. So it needs to grow from seed. It takes about, it's a slow grower, so it takes about 30 years before it is even thick enough. Then it needs to lose its side branches, acquire white rot, and then it becomes available to the bees. So 
<laughs> once the grass trees have toppled over, we have a period, if there is no additional fire, a period of about 30, 25 years until new Banksia comes, becomes available. And that is a very long time to be at a very low population density. So this bee does relatively well with fire, provided they are small fires uh, that are in a mosaic and that you also have very long unburned places. Now, in Kangaroo Island, in 2007, a large part of the park burned and that part then had grass trees flowering, etc. But along the side of the park, uh, especially in the south side, there were some very old unburned areas. For people who know the area well, that was Kelly Hill Conservation Park. It had old banksia trunks, and that is from where the bees recolonized the park. And then in 2012, we started to think, well, what's going to happen when these grass tree stalks are going to fall down? And so we did a survey and we found that there would be a very large reduction in the size. So this is where we started to develop some strategies for the conservation of this bee on the island. Mm. We did that uh, knowing that they had gone extinct in Victoria. And as you said, they were last seen in Victoria in the 1930s. This was in the Grampians. And in 1938, early December 1938, is when the last one was caught in the Grampians. And late 1938, late, very late in December, the whole Grampians burnt down. And it is that probably that caused the local extinction of the carpenter bee because if everything burns, there is no food, there is no nest substrate, there is a very low population size. And if, like the Grampians, the area is completely isolated, the bees cannot get there anymore. So that's probably what happened in the Grampians. Now that is, it is very possible that this will also now happen on Kangaroo Island because, of course, it's surrounded by sea, it's nearly all burnt. However, we've done some surveys already, and we've found 22 nests dispersed over six unburnt locations. So we found very, very low densities, but the bees are still there. Well, that's certainly a relief that they are still there. Were those six unburnt areas on a particular side of the island? To the north of Flinders Chase National Park, there is an area of, uh, of private properties that is unburned, and that is where we found some. We have been lucky enough to, in 2015, we'd done a small relocation to be able to study their biology, and <laughs> there are still bees in that area, so that area was unburned. And then there are patchy... Uh, less burnt areas where, where we still found, well, one or two or three nests. That's, that's the extent of it. 
And in terms of that kind of earlier years when you saw the devastation and of the fires in 2007 and then you noticed that there were some old banksias that had remained unburnt, did the carpenter bees take up those unburnt banksias? They were, they were already there. Where, where the fire goes through, they just burn. Mm. So to give you an idea, uh, we developed a nest substrate to tie the bees over from when the grass trees topple down until when the banksias are available. We did that in 2013-14 and have been planting nesting stalks for them in the park. Now, when the, when the fire through in January... We had 300 nesting stalks for them planted in the park and 150 of them were in use by the bees. And these nests all had developing brood in them. So the female lives just longer than a year. She has already nearly lived a year. She has produced her offspring. The offspring are not ready to fly. The offspring burn. You have nothing. So that's what happened. Um, they all burned. Gosh, it's really uh, horrible. Because <laughs> yeah, it is. It hurts to hear that because I know you were saying the life cycle is that in January they start to emerge, but obviously at that early point in January they hadn't yet left. No, they hadn't. So basically, even if then the mother leaves, she hasn't got another year of reproduction in her. Oh, yeah. So 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 basically whatever wherever a fire goes through you lose it but what what it is in tune with is patchy mosaic fires with areas that are long term unburned and it is those areas that are becoming more and more rare. And that then relates to the strategy of, of fuel reduction burns, etc. If you do that often, everywhere, you will lose those bees. So fuel reduction and managing the landscape needs to keep in mind species like the green carpenter bee. Yeah, fuel reduction burns need to keep in mind that some plants have very slow, long life cycles. So people who think that it would be okay to burn something every seven years even, well, it takes a banksia about seven to ten years to flower for the first time. If they don't flower, they don't produce seeds. You won't get seedlings after fire. So these are really a fundamental understanding of that landscape is really important. And what we saw uh, since the 2007 fires on Kangaroo Island is that last year was the first year that the regenerated eucalypts were flowering, the cupcoms, were flowering in abundance for the first time after fire. So before that, there was the old flowering, but, but this was the first time they flowered in abundance after the 2007 fire. So that took 12 years. Mm. Gosh. So cycles can be very, very slow, and that really needs to be kept in mind when people argue that we need to fuel reduction burn or, or manage the environment's to make sure there is no uh, fuel because that's a vicious cycle. If you burn, 
you get a lot of low vegetation that builds up and then the landscape settles down in something uh, that has less vegetation on the ground because there's less light coming through and there is less food in the in the soil but if you keep on burning you keep on inducing a lot of growth so there's several things there I'm not saying that fuel reduction burns is something you shouldn't do, but we need to understand the whole of the landscape and the ecology and what we're doing to uh, do that in a responsible way. Yes. And the other threat to the nesting material and habitats for the green carpenter bee that you and your colleagues have outlined is around habitat clearing, which is another factor. How much of that is continuing in terms of threatening those grass tree stalks and the old banksia trunks? Um, that is that is very much on the cards still because habitat clearing is, is, is ongoing and it is also um, there are there are so many threats to the to the remaining what five percent of the natural landscape that we still have. Um, the clearing, for instance, in New South Wales, the clearing has been increasing, despite the fact that we need forest and we need trees to cool the earth down, because we can reduce our CO2 emissions, which we have to do to make sure the earth doesn't warm up further. But it is vegetation that cools the earth Vegetation allows evaporation, it allows rain, uh, it, it creates a cover of the soil that, uh, that prevents heating up. So um, it is a real worry. From a philosophical point of view, there are two ways of looking at the landscape. Well, we are part of the landscape as humans, or we use the landscape, including parts, for us. And very much many people think that nature is there for humans. And of course, it is not really. It's just there. And if we want to protect it, uh, maybe we should just protect it and not interfere with it too much. That's my view. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. When you were talking about those artificial nesting substrates that you and your team have designed, I understand that it took a few years really to get that design right so that it would be successful. And as you said, when you had 300 stalks a couple of years ago, 150 were being used then for nesting. In terms of those artificial nesting substrates, how did you come up with that design and refine it and how were those nesting sites affected by the Kangaroo Island summer bushfires? So we initially, I did what I did during my PhD, which I knew, which was uh, we had, I had during my PhD a number of observation nests for carpenter bees. This allowed me to study them just by looking through a piece of, uh, of, of glass. So that was really, really very nice. So um, because I'm a scientist, I thought, oh, it would be so good to have these bees in observation nests. Let's try that. And we then put observation nests everywhere and we can see them. But they didn't really like those observation nests and they reproduced in them, but then they left them. And we thought, well, as a conservation strategy, this is not a good idea. Let's 
do something else. And what we did is we made fake grass tree stalks, uh, so nesting stalks made from balsa wood, so wood, and they were mounted on a piece of plastic pressure pipe and they were planted in existing grass trees. And the bees used them well. Compared to the take-up of, of bird boxes, they use them like mad because 50% take-up is immense. So they were very, very popular and much more popular than the uh, observation nests, which, of course, I would have liked to work because that allows us to study them much better because you can't look into a bee nest when you can only see wood on the outside. So how do we know that we use them then? Well, we were lucky enough to meet some vets who were really interested in this. And these were vets specialized in horses. And they have portable x-ray machines. So these vets came with us on the island to look inside the carpenter bee nest. So we drove past, collected a few nests, took a photo, uh, x-ray photo, and could count the bees inside the nests. And then we put them back. So very little intrusion, no harm to the bees. I had used the method during my PhD, so I knew that you have to expose them to really high-frequency x-rays to get harm to the eggs initially, but there weren't any eggs, there were only adults. And so we could document how many bees had been produced and were present in the winter nests, which is fantastic and, uh, and really, really cool. So uh, that's how we knew that they were used without having observationists. Wow. And with those nests that were being so successful, were a number of those destroyed more recently in those recent bushfires? And have you had to consider placing more in that Kangaroo Island area? What's the kind of strategy in terms of looking at the effects of the recent bushfires? Yeah, so... We have been fundraising and we got funds from the State Department of Environment as well to do surveys of the recently unburnt sites, of of the unburnt sites. And we are about two thirds along that survey. And then using the, the fundraising funds we have, uh, already, ah, we had raised funds through the Wing Bee Foundation and got a grant from the ANZ, community support. Um, that was before the fires, so that the men shed on Kangaroo Island could make the nest substrate for us because it's a lot of work and uh, it's all work that is uh, we do in our spare time. And so we would spend weekends... Uh, I think make every year weekends, weekends making those nests. They are a lot of work. So this was a, a one-off grant, and the men shed already made 500 nests for the project, and we put now some of these out in areas where the bees still occurs and where where we think they might still occur, although we only found old nests because there wasn't much substrate left. And then we will check those later on in the year for activity. And if they get taken up, 
we will x-ray them and then we will build up a bit of a population hopefully so that there will be more bees to colonize the grass tree stalks when they're ready in two years' time. So because the population is so low and so dispersed, we really need more bees to avoid extinction. Absolutely. And I recall in a talk you gave, you were saying that the material cost to produce these artificial nests were about 5000 a year, but that you need a kind of ongoing source of funding to be able to continue that nesting project. Why is that ongoing requirement there? So, as you can imagine, after the grass tree stalks have toppled down, you need... a about 25 years before the banksias are suitable, at least 25 years. We don't even know that exactly. And during that 25 years, every year you need to put out new stalks because old stalks are used up by the bees, because they dig new tunnels all the time, because ants take over nests and wasps and spiders, etc., etc. So, So you need renewal. You need constant renewal of the of the substrate. Bees are very clean animals, and they like clean new nests. So that is what uh, we do. But even if even if we cannot save the population on Kangaroo Island, not all hope is lost because the same species still occurs around Sydney in northern New South Wales. So we might, and that is another project that we haven't got money for yet, we might have a look at whether we can use strategies to spread the risk for this species, for instance, by reintroducing it into the Grampians or reintroducing on Kangaroo Island. We have to be very careful. There's got to be, uh, we've got to know about population differences and et cetera and diseases, but it might be possible to do that. Wow. Yeah, the kind of other population which you write about in that piece is around New South Wales' Great Dividing Range. And uh, you actually brought me to my next question, which is fantastic, because in your recent journal article in Austral Ecology, when you were looking at the modelling of climate suitability of the green carpenter bee and nesting hosts, the last sentence in the abstract refers to the Grampians National Park in Western Victoria. And you write that it's predicted to remain suitable for them and several host plants under all scenarios that you've modelled. And therefore, this relatively large area of native vegetation may be a good case study for reintroduction. In terms of the Grampians, obviously post-bushfires from those very severe fires in the 1930s, has the area regenerated to the extent that it could be used quite readily in terms of the Banksias, obviously given that very long lead time that's required? We haven't quantified that yet. It's a long time since I've been in the Grampians, I think it's 12 years ago, something like that. And then I know I saw suitable Banksia trunks there, but we need to make sure that there is enough there and that is part of a proposal that we uh, want to do look at, well, what are suitable sites for reintroduction of the bee potentially. 
That's really exciting. One of the elements, of course, of this, a very key element, is the fact that native bees and the green carpenter bee is a buzz-pollinating species. And I wondered whether you could tell us a little bit about buzz-pollination with the green carpenter bee and its role within the ecosystem as well. So... There are a lot of bees that can buzz pollinate. Uh, honeybees cannot do it. And buzz pollination is a weird kind of adaptation, and it evolves many times in flowers where the pollen is inside the anthers. So it needs to be shaken out. It's a bit like a salt and pepper shaker. So the bees shake the flower, and they hang off the flower, they shake it, and because of that, pollen falls out and they can collect it. So if you want to know more about that, there's beautiful slow motion footage of that for blue banded bees that are very well known buzz pollinators. And you just have to look at, uh, you search for blue banded buzz pollination and there is, uh, 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 or head banging bees you can look for. And there's a lot of um, uh, information about that. Now, there are a large number of Australian buzz pollinated plants, native plants, for instance, the guinea flowers, all solanums, the um, black-eyed Susans, the Tisratica, lots of uh, flowering plants are buzz pollinated. And they, of course, rely on those bees that can do that. Now, the green carpenter bee being a large buzz pollinator, uh, that means that it would, in an area, uh, pollinate a lot of flowers because the larger you are, the more food you need. And uh, so carpenter bees do a lot of that pollination in any area that they occur. And I remember reading about a study that was looking at blue-banded bees and comparing them to the North American bumblebees and was looking at how efficient and quickly a blue-banded bee could actually conduct or do buzz pollination. Um, and it was really interesting to see the difference between those two species or kinds and the fact that, as you say, there's a head-banging motion and that um, those blue-banded bees were doing it, was it about 320 times a second? Yes, that is absolutely amazing. And if you look for head-banging bees, you will find that slow motion. 320 times per second, they bang their head to the answer to get the pollen out. And uh, <laughs> how they do it, I have no idea. <laughs> it is pretty amazing to think and it's so surprising. And no doubt there are really a number of amazing parts in your research that must come up on a very regular basis. Just finally, I know that you have looked at a range of native bees like the teddy bear bees as well and that you have been involved in identifying and describing new species with colleagues and have, you know, identified quite a number in recent times. Were there any particular native bees that captured your imagination when you were doing that type of work? Um, well, they they are all have got their own special things. I mean, uh, very many bees are beautiful because they've got bands of hairs and and beautiful brushes everywhere, or interesting 
sprinkle hairs on their face to collect pollen from certain species or indeed very narrow faces so that they can get past the bend in a Eremophila flower, there's so much variation. There's about 2,000 Australian native bee species. We are indeed uh, still discovering species, what, on a monthly basis at the moment. And it is, um, it's truly fascinating to see what's out there and to see the city. It's just beautiful. Mm, it must be so inspiring to do that. It is, it is. And it also gives me a lot of motivation to promote people from protecting natural areas, to plant native plants, to not take a honeybee hive unless you need it for pollination. Just protect the native species that are out there would be great. Oh, absolutely. And hopefully when people are preparing for spring, they can think about native plants when they're looking at their gardens. Yes, yes. And if you want to see native bees, by all means, take a bee hotel. You're not doing much unless you plant uh, the proper plants for the bees. But uh, it, it is always nice to see bees doing their thing. Yes. Katia, if people wanted to support your work on Kangaroo Island, is there a way to contribute to the fundraising? There is. There is. We, we've had some fundraising bouts through the Wing Bee Foundation and also through Seacology. They have now finished, but the Australian Entomological Society has a website. And if you go to conservation, then there is a link to make a donation and you can choose between four species and the carpenter bee is one of them. Excellent. I'll post that link up to our social media pages so people can go to that if they're interested. And uh, thank you so much, Katia, for your generosity and passion today, sharing with us the delights of native bees and particularly the metallic green carpenter bee. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Katia Hogendorn, who is an entomologist and a native bee and honeybee expert based at the University of Adelaide. And we've been talking about the metallic green carpenter bee, which you can read more about in their article on the conversation called Jewel of Nature. And I'll post that link as well. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.